0: City WLCC Brandon
1: Faith Talk Tampa Download the Faith Talk Tampa app Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey
0: following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries And is pre-recorded
1: We don't want to lower the biblical standards of marriage And whenever I teach on the issue of divorce I'm always careful about that I don't want to be misunderstood God's plan for a man and a woman Is to be married forever That's His original intention But I believe if you take the Bible in its normal language that because of sin, God permits the remarriage after a divorce in some circumstances. And let's face it, most of the reasons people are getting divorced today have nothing to do with biblical views at all. So let me just tell you a few places that the Bible deals with this. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus reiterates it in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 Jesus says, and it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. You know what he was saying? He was saying that the view of the day was this, just get the paperwork done and it's fine. Doesn't matter why you divorce this woman. And back then in Israel's time, a man could only divorce a woman rather than the other way around. So we'll use that illustration. But their mentality, the mentality of the Pharisees was just get the paperwork done. We don't care why. I mean, maybe she burnt your toast or burnt your bagels. I don't care. Just get the paperwork done.
2: last two verse-by-verse broadcasts, Pastor Steve has been talking about marriage and divorce, and you might be wondering, why? I mean, our series is titled God's Standards for Church Leadership, so why is Pastor Steve going off on a marriage seminar? As we are going to find out on today's broadcast, Pastor Steve went through all of that to, shall we say, clear the air and set the stage for the qualification that says an elder should be the husband of one wife. That phrase doesn't mean he has to be married, and it doesn't mean that he can't remarry if his first wife dies. It means just what it says, he's a man who is faithful to one wife, he is a loyal, devoted husband. We are going to find out today, this is a character quality, not a spiritual quality. Now, I'm going to stop right there and let Pastor Steve take it from here. Pastor Steve, they're all yours. I want
1: to be careful about that, I don't want to lower the standards, God hates divorce. But I don't believe that Paul is dealing with it. And I want to tell you some reasons. And I think there are some problems with this view. This text doesn't say, regardless of what it means, it does not say an elder must be a man who hasn't been divorced. It just doesn't say that. There's another reason. And that is just a very light and surface reason. Well, we don't want to lower the biblical view of marriage. There are very high standards for marriage. In fact, there is a four-tape album on this whole issue. It's the first album that I ever did. And if you're interested in finding out a little bit more about this, then you need to get that album and study it. We're just going to touch upon some of these things now. But we don't want to lower the biblical standards of marriage. And whenever I teach on the issue of divorce, I'm always careful about that. I don't want to be misunderstood. God's plan for a man and a woman is to be married forever. That's his original intention. But I believe if you take the Bible in its normal language that because of sin, God permits the remarriage after a divorce in some circumstances. And let's face it, most of the reasons people are getting divorced today have nothing to do with biblical views at all. So let me just tell you a few places that the Bible deals with this. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus reiterates it in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says, And it was said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. You know what he was saying? He was saying that the view of the day was this. Just get the paperwork done and it's fine. Doesn't matter why you divorce this woman. And back then in Israel's time, a man could only divorce a woman rather than the other way around. So we'll use that illustration. But their mentality, the mentality of the Pharisees was just get the paperwork done. We don't care why. I mean, maybe she burnt your toast or burnt your bagels. I don't care. Just get the paperwork done. And Jesus answers that. And he says in verse 32, but I say to you, I mean, the prevailing view of the times may be just get the legality of the paperwork out of the way and it's fine. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, now watch this, except for the cause of fornication or unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that if you divorce a wife, and the implication being she's going to get remarried. I want you to understand that. I don't believe the Bible isolates divorce from remarriage. The reason the Pharisees and the reason the Jewish people were divorcing their wives was to get remarried. It was not to remain single. They were looking for loopholes to get out of their marriage so they can marry someone else. That's what Jesus is addressing. So what he's saying is, if you divorce your wife, and she marries another, you cause her to become an adulteress, to commit adultery. But what a lot of people don't realize is that little clause there, except it be for fornication. And if you're going to take language in its normal way, you will have to conclude That except to be fornication just means that, that he is permitting in the case of illicit sexual relations, the divorcing of a wife and the remarriage. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't hate divorce. He still does. But God is saying, in essence, when there is a prolonged, unrepentant sexual sin on the part of a spouse... And it could be, by the way, it's not just adultery. It could be homosexuality, lesbians, any kind of perverted sexual relationship. If it is prolonged and unrepentant and continued and there's no change of heart and mind, then I believe the scripture is teaching that the innocent partner can divorce and remarry and there is no adultery. See, the real issue here is what constitutes adultery. And Jesus is saying if the marriage was already invaded by fornication deviant sexual behavior Then to divorce someone in that situation when it is a prolonged thing and then to remarry does not make one commit adultery let me give you an example of this or just a thought on this in the old testament what happened when someone was caught in adultery killed stoned for the most part that's what happened what happened to the person who was married to that person they were a widow or a widower real fast Do you think God was saying that you can never remarry now? They're left a widower or a widow. Well, just because in the New Testament age of grace, God is gracious and we don't kill adulterers or adulteresses today, it doesn't mean that the innocent party is condemned to a life of celibacy if he wants or she wants to get remarried. God hates divorce, but he's gracious to the victim of fornication by a spouse. There's another area in which I believe the Bible permits it. And understand, we're not encouraging this. We're not saying if you find that your spouse is involved in misbehavior, you go right out and divorce. No, we're just saying what Jesus said. The Bible permits it. And he reiterates us and expands on it in Matthew chapter 19. But if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you'll see something else. Now, this is the chapter dealing with celibacy and marriage and so forth. He says in verse 15 of chapter 7, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, he means now there are two people married and you have an unbelieving spouse and you have a believing spouse. Jesus, by the way, didn't deal with this. He dealt with marriage and divorce only in the economy of Israel, assuming that there were two believers here, at least those who profess believers. But Paul was left to deal with the problem of what about a believer being married to an unbeliever? And the unbeliever says, I don't care for this Jesus stuff. I want to split. What do you do? Very real problem in the early church, a real problem today as well. If the unbelieving one leaves, does Paul say, go after him, grab him, bring him back. No, Paul says, if he wants out, let him leave. If that's really what he wants. Doesn't mean you shove him out the door. You do everything you can to preserve that marriage. You don't say, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I don't want to be married to you. And that's what Paul had to deal with. You don't do that. You stay with him, But if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage. In such cases, bondage in what way? Bondage to be married. That's the whole context. But God has called us to peace. God has not called us to a lifetime of war with the spouse who wants to leave, but you keep pulling and holding him back, and he says, I'm gone, and you keep... No. If he wants to leave, he's an unbeliever, let him leave. Desertion. And the Bible says that person is free to remarry. Now, in verse 8, and throughout this chapter, Paul is going to deal with a few different people. He's going to deal with widows. He's going to deal with the unmarried. He's going to deal with virgins, those who have never been married. He says in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I." Now, I want you to understand, he makes a distinction in verse 8 between the unmarried and the widows. Okay, there is a distinction there. In verse 34, He says, And the woman, I'm just reading on a little bit, and the woman who is unmarried and the virgin. Now he makes a distinction between the unmarried and the virgin. The virgin would be those women who have never been married. The unmarried are not widows, and they're not virgins. Who are they? They have to be those who were married, and now they are no longer married. But not because they're widowed, and not because they've never been married. They have been married, and for one reason or another, they are no longer married. These are obviously divorced people, people who have had their unbelieving spouse depart that Paul just mentioned in verse 15. These are divorced people who have been deserted, and Paul tells them it's better to get married than to burn with lust. In verse 8, he says, but I say to the unmarried, we could say unmarried, divorced people that it is good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, verse 9, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now Paul obviously is encouraging these people who have been divorced, who have been deserted, to remarry, which means he is not saying, go get remarried and you'll be involved in adultery. So if you put this all together... What we're saying is there are times when there's been sexual unfaithfulness and desertion when God says it is all right to remarry. I want to say that I believe remarriage doesn't automatically... Now, listen for a moment. Don't jump to conclusions. Remarriage, based on these verses, doesn't automatically disqualify a man from being an elder. Now, let's face it. Most of the time, divorces are not for fornication nor are they for desertion. But if they are, biblically... Biblically speaking now, if we're going to have biblical integrity, we would have to say he would not be disqualified because of his divorce if it was in these two situations. If it were other situations, that is a different story, but not these two situations. You see, if they haven't committed a sin by remarriage, then we can't go beyond biblical authority and say they're unqualified to be leaders in the church. Now it could be, and this is what I want you to understand, it could be that they're not guilty of the sin of adultery, but it could be because they failed to manage their families well, their wives, their children, that maybe they push their wife to the brink of being unfaithful. That's a real possibility. If that's the case and he's disqualified because he didn't manage his family well, not because of adultery, do you understand that? Maybe he's not a fornicator, but did he mismanage his family so that his wife couldn't take it with him any longer and she left him? That's a very real possibility and one that needs to be explored. But we would be wrong in saying, well, it's because of fornication on his wife's part and remarriage and so forth that he can't serve as an elder. Now, let me just say this too. Let's just assume that we're saying, even if we're saying that Paul is talking about a man being married only once and no divorce and so forth, even if we are, which I don't believe he's saying, but if we are, then the prohibition isn't against a divorced man so much but a divorced man who has remarried. I mean, if you're going to take the view that it's divorce, then he's not really dealing with that. Then you have to say that the problem is a divorced man who's remarried, not the divorce, but I don't think that's the issue at all. Every situation has to be looked at individually. All right, we've said all of that. Now, if the phrase husband of one wife doesn't mean he has to be married, and it doesn't mean that... He can't remarry if his first wife dies, or polygamy, or divorce, or remarriage, where scripture permits, then what does it mean? We had to clear the air before we looked at it. It means just what it says. He's a one-woman kind of a man. He's a man, you know what it means? He's a man who is faithful to one wife, to one woman. He is a loyal, devoted husband. It's not talking about divorce. It's not talking about remarriage. It's talking about the man right where he is now is faithful and loyal to his wife. He's not promiscuous. He's not involved in questionable relationships with other women. He's above reproach in his relationship with his wife. It's exactly what it means. It can't possibly mean that he's married to only one woman. I mean, people want to say that. Well, he's married only to one woman. Never has there been anything. Just married to one woman. Because that wouldn't be a spiritual quality. It's not spiritual to be married. It is just a marital status. These are character qualities. Keep it in its context. There's no virtue in just being married. Unsafe people are married, and that doesn't qualify them for leadership. And there are plenty of men who have been married to the same woman for 30, 40, 50 years, but they're not loyal. Just because you're married doesn't mean that you're a one-woman kind of a man. And I might add, it does not mean just sexual loyalty, though that's a part of it. But it means an attitude of loyalty. Maybe you don't have affairs with other women, but you'd like to if you had the chance. You see, Paul saying we don't want that kind of That kind of man can't lead. But the kind of man who is qualified is a man who has eyes only for his wife and his wife alone. He's not interested in other women. He's not flirtatious. He's not sleeping around. He's not a playboy. This man is loyal to his wife And he can be trusted to deal with other females in the congregation in a wholesome fashion. There's no question about his moral integrity and intentions when he gets around other women. That's the point. And I might add one reason we know this is, well, there are two basic reasons. But first of all, it's because he's dealing with spiritual qualities, not marital status. Secondly, because we understand a little bit about how wicked the Roman Empire really was. I have a whole bunch of quotes in front of me, but let me just say this. I'm going to pull out a few things that the writers in Paul's day said. One writer said this. This may sound funny, but I think it's sad. He says, only the ugly are loyal. If you're loyal, it means you're ugly. He says this. A woman who is content to have only two followers is a paragon of virtue. One writer says this, when a marriage took place, the home to which the couple were going was decorated with green bay leaves. One writer said that there were those who entered on divorce before the bays of welcome had faded. In 19 BC, a man named Quintus Lucretius Vespillo erected a tablet to his wife which said, seldom do marriages last until death or divorce, but ours continued happily for 41 years. The writer says this was an astonishing exception. It was so amazing, the guy had a right about it. Only the ugly are loyal. You realize that? In other words, what he's saying is nobody's really loyal. Nobody wants to have that stigma put on them. You're loyal because you're too ugly to get anybody interested in you. That's what he's saying. Now, do you think that it's a fair assumption knowing that, that it is a fair assumption to make that very few men in the early church led moral lives before they were converted? I mean, that's not asking too much to assume that. If divorce was rampant in the Roman Empire, then you have to conclude that there had to be a lot of divorced men who were converted, who now the church faced the issue of, could they lead in the church? I mean, let's face it, in the first generation, just about everybody was coming out of pagan immorality, at least many were. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is just so vital that I've wanted to deal fully with this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That was the congregation at Corinth, and that's the congregation in many churches And that's good. That's fine. Because it's in the past. Now they're different. So what do you do with men who came out of this kind of immorality? Men who were homosexual. Men who were fornicators. Men who were adulterers. What do you do with them? Can he be an elder? If he's proven himself since his conversion, yes he can. Yes he can. 1 Timothy 3 doesn't disqualify a man on what he used to be before conversion. And I think this is so very important It doesn't disqualify him on any other area. Why is it that the church wants to focus just on divorce? Why marriage? We are so inconsistent. We'll take a man as a leader who was unfaithful to his wife before conversion. He was a playboy. He was unfaithful. He was disloyal. But he was married. And we'll say he could be a leader. But a man who wasn't unfaithful, but for one reason or another, was divorced. Maybe it wasn't even a legitimate reason, but it was divorced before he was converted. We'll say, no, you can't serve. That, folks, is inconsistent. That is inconsistent. In fact, if we look at every man before conversion, I've got news for you. No one qualifies. No one qualifies. Look at the list. It says in verse 3, or let's just even look in verse 2. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. Able to teach. Listen, who was able to teach before they were converted? Who's able to teach the Word of God? Who, in fact, was hospitable before they knew the Lord? I didn't open my doors to people before I knew the Lord. What about verse 3? He's not addicted to wine. You mean to tell me that if a man got drunk when he was a teenager before he was converted, he can't serve as an elder now, though he's 30, 40, 50 years old? He's been walking with the Lord ever since? What about pugnacious? You know what that means? It means he wasn't a fighter. Listen, do you mean because when I was 10 years old, I used to get into a lot of fights that I can't be an elder now? You see, I just want you to see where that thinking leads to. I want to quote. It's a rather lengthy quote. It's an important quote from Ed Glasscock, who wrote in Dallas Seminary's journal back in 1983 about this very issue. And I quote, just listen, very important. Everyone who has been born into God's family has experienced this forgiveness, which is based on God's satisfaction that Christ's sacrifice was adequate compensation for the violation of God's holiness. A person's second marriage may have indeed been sin, but after conversion, one cannot divorce his second wife in hopes of returning to his first wife, for that would involve a new sin in itself. Further, it is inconsistent to allow a divorced and remarried man to become a member of the church on the grounds that his previous sins have been adequately paid for through Christ and yet forbid him a leadership role because of his previous sins, which Christ removed by his death. If a church is bound to judge its members on the consequences of their lives before conversion, then who can meet the majority of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3? Are churches as quick to forbid a man the office of an elder or deacon because before his conversion he was not above reproach or because he was pugnacious? Certainly one cannot attempt to make the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 apply to a man's life before he is saved. If God has forgiven him and made him a part of his church, why do Christians hold this past sin against him? When one is saved, all All his sins are forgiven. He becomes a member of the body of Christ. His body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. He receives a new nature created after God's own holiness. He becomes a new creature and he becomes a part of God's spiritual house and royal priesthood. Before a man is saved, he is dead towards God and his holy standards. He has no power over sin, no knowledge of God's word or will. Thus, to judge one's life before his new birth is totally unjust. Paul states that even adulterers were washed, sanctified, and justified. Paul's concern in 1st Timothy 3 is that if a man desires the office of an elder, he must be qualified at that time, not before his conversion. For those concerned with the testimony of the church, let them consider which glorifies God more. That he takes an unworthy, defiled human and makes him pure enough to become his own servants, or that though God forgives, he does not let a man's past sins be forgotten. Even divorced and remarried Christians can trust the great promises of God's forgiveness. If God has made a man clean, how can the church consider him unworthy to serve God even at the highest levels? Is the church guilty of Peter's prejudice so that God must also rebuke believers and say as he did to Peter, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. It does not seem possible that by Paul's phrase, he intends to hold a man's pre-conversion sins against him. And I... Wholeheartedly agree with this quote. I think he has a very, very important point. Nobody would qualify if we're dealing with before a man was converted. Now let's just kind of wrap this up. Paul's point is this. From the time of a man's conversion, or we might say in the present time, in the present time and going back some way so that it's the general character of his life, he is blameless in the area of his marriage. He loves the wife of his youth. He is madly in love with her. He wants nobody else. He is satisfied with this one woman and everybody knows it. There's no question about it. Do you ever wonder why this is the first on the list of all the qualifications? I can't prove this but I believe that it's the first on the list because it's the greatest problem area. Paul knew it would be. Marital and sexual purity is a major problem in the lives of pastors. That may shock you, but it's true. I hear of a lot of pastors who are unfaithful to their wives.
2: One of the themes Pastor Steve has brought is this. Qualifications for church leadership involve where the person in question is in life right now, not where they were before Christ. If God has forgiven this man and made him part of his church, we can't hold his past sin against him, can we? When one is saved, all his sins are forgiven. He becomes a new creature and he becomes a part of God's spiritual house and royal priesthood. I hope these lessons have caused you to think and to examine your own life. This series, of course, is about God's standards for church leadership. But it is also important, as we have learned, that we apply this to our own life as well. So that when people around us see us, They see us as above reproach. Now, before we go, I'd like to invite you to join with the other worshipers at Lakeside Community Chapel. That is, if you are in the Clearwater, Florida area. You can find out more about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com. That's lakesidechapel.com.